Hello and welcome to This is a Token with Alex Monroe, the podcast that celebrates all things jewellery. I've spent half a lifetime designing and making jewellery, but what really interests me is what it means to other people. This is a podcast where we ask our guest about the jewellery they cherish most of all. We'll explore the moving, fascinating and often surprising stories connected to each piece and those emotional bonds that we just can't do without. My guest today is the fashion model Erin O'Connor. I must say I didn't know where to start with Erin. Luckily, she hardly needs an introduction at all. She's been an absolute icon of the British fashion scene since the late 1990s, and she's still at it. We're all used to seeing her on the cover of fashion magazines or strutting her stuff on the catwalk, but there's a lot more to Erin than the images we're familiar with. She's been a huge force in the campaign to make the fashion industry more diverse and to challenge fashion's narrow ideals of beauty. In 2017, she received an MBE in recognition of all her work in both fashion and charity. Now, I've been working in the fashion industry at the nuts and bolts end for about 35 years, so I can't wait to hear about the more glamorous side of things and to talk to Erin about some of the amazing pieces of jewellery she's brought along today. I say brought along, but of course we're doing this on Zoom, so I do hope our very patient and generous listener will bear with us if we have any of the usual technical challenges. But actually it all seems to be working okay at the moment, so fingers crossed, and I'd like to say a huge, massive thank you to Erin and welcome to This Is A Token. You know, yeah, kind of right. going a bit mad. This is Connie Erin, my daughter. So, Very nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. I'm just helping with the tech side of it. We better behave ourselves because the directors are the ones that got it all going on. <laughs> I know, I know. And she tells me off when I'm an arse. I was about to say, can I just very cheekily ask you to send me the colour that's on your walls? Yes. It's green. Yeah. Green is my favourite colour. I love it. It's almost like an acidy, punky green. I love the colour. We spent mm. ages moving the laptop around because green everywhere that we face is Well, I didn't think about it too much. I ran upstairs after I had my lunch and then I very happily jumped into bed because I, I uh, yeah, I often have to hide literally in my bed from, from my children from time to time. It's been quite full on at the moment because there's homeschool and then having a baby, you know, it's, uh, but I'm learning a lot. <laughs> Yeah. I'm I'm learning the right way around this time. It's so interesting. It's you know. so tough. We were so lucky. All the kids have grown up. So yeah. two of my yeah, girls yeah, are, yeah. are off. Connie's, Connie's at home for a while, but she'll be off as soon as she can get out. So you have three girls? Yeah. Yeah, I'm one of three girls. Are you? Yeah, bang in the middle. Oh, I'm number two. I'm number two. <laughs> Connie, it was meant to be today. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. I um, have absolutely loved having three daughters. And I think that's one of the things that has made me be such a fan of yours was, is because I've really become like stridently militant about the treatment of young women, about body yeah. image. Yeah. What amazes me is some guys that kind of catcall and things, you kind of think, mate, haven't you got a mother or a daughter or something? Like, I was out with Verity, actually, and she went into the loo in the cafe. And then a table of boys were all like, oh, I'd shake that. Yeah. I turned around and said, she's, she's fucking 13 years old, you bastard. Yeah. Why would you objectify someone like this? Anyway, so yeah. I, I'm, I've become a bit of a militant. It's the willingness. It's the conscious willingness behind wanting to freak a girl out. That's what I really find distressing. I think it's really difficult for girls growing up today. I really do, because everything is so overt. So when I was growing up, we had a really good mix of women. And I suppose we were really heavily into music, which lots of teens are. So it was always a good place to start image-wise as well. So I'm going back to Shakespeare's sister. I'm going back to Alanis Morissette. I'm going to Tori Amos. They were all accomplished musicians who wrote their own stuff. And you could see that their sense of style was inspiring on people. But when I look at the women that are famous 
today and the power that they yield or wield, I should say, it, it's a bit tough because everything is a bit overtly sexual. Yeah, very much so. And in a way, ironically, it's a regression, isn't it? Of course, they're very successful, they're powerful, they're probably in every way possible, self-sufficient and secure. But it's so um, insecurity enhancing, I think, for lots of girls going from girlhood to womanhood. I don't know, Connie, I'm interested to hear what you have to say, actually. That's really interesting. I didn't think about that at all. Like thinking about those artists that you were talking about and... I'd never really seen them as like sexualized, but now I can't, now you've said that, I'm finding it really hard to think of any female musicians who aren't. Their bodies are what is spoken about so much. Yeah, so when you think of Tori Amos, you think of amazing piano skills. Yeah. Yeah, And when I think of Shakespeare's sister, I think of her amazing voice and she always had the best lipstick. It was in a very stylized, purposeful, away you know and then Alanis Morissette that she's the best lyricist in the world she's a poet she bought a bee recently and I I just want to go you know I love you Alanis because that album Jagged Jagged Little Pill oh yeah okay yeah so I just inhabit completely inhabit a female world so I I have my wife Denise and three daughters and then at work we're like there's kind of two blokes at work. Yeah. And I've worked in the fashion industry. So I'm, I'm thinking your end of the high end of the fashion industry is, is more balanced. My end is entirely female. So I'm in the nuts and bolts end. So I do the, you know, the, the static shows around the world, see the buyers and we deal with buyers in shops and press. And it's, it's entirely a woman's world, which has been a brilliant pleasure to work in. But you've worked with lots of great men, haven't you? <laughs> well, first of all, I want to say I'm only 10 years behind you. So I'm coming up to 25 years. You know, that is at least an eon in, in fashion years. And um, it's the best temporary job I've ever had. It's still going. And, you know, I thought after my first child, right, well, I'm sure it will slow down now. After my second child, actually, just before he was born, I managed one more runway in Paris. And I was eight months it was at the Royal Opera House yeah the only thing that made it work was lots of really good women we all spoke different languages there was a lot going on and I had a wobble over the shoes and the shiny floor so in fact what I had to do was have a sensible conversation with the women (laughs) around me half of them had carried children uh, themselves and um, a very kind model allowed me to wear her converse boots so under this fantastical couture gown of about 7,000 layers of taffeta was a pair of converse boots. Was it was it all made specially for you to fit? It was, yeah. Actually, it was so complicated. Heavy with child, I had to get on all fours and crawl underneath it and then emerge from the top like a waterfall. Wow. wow. <laughs> so I didn't really answer your question. My wife, Denise, was a fashion model probably at her height in the mid 80s. It was more of a jobbing model, I suppose. So I think she made good money. Then we kind of had kids and everything yeah. happened. But she's actually yeah. just gone back to uni because she never went to uni because like, she was spotted when she was probably the same age as you. And kabum. She was 17. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, same as me. Yeah. I mean, that's the period. That's the time period generally in which models begin these very adult international careers. It's all a bit wrong, isn't it? Actually, if you think about you know, needing to be evolved enough to be in charge of your own business. And you have to have self-awareness, a certain self-advocacy. You have to be self-sufficient. And I don't know many 17, 18-year-old girls that have those skills. You're not supposed to. You're supposed to be a rebel. You're supposed to do things wrong. You're supposed to get into trouble. You know, that's the time in your life in which you can do that stuff, isn't it? And yet, all of a sudden, I'm self-employed, essentially, first and foremost, and, and I'm trying to earn a living so that I can live, but I don't know what's going to happen to me or where I'm going to go or where I'm going to end up living. You know, you just have no end game. You know, if you train for a job or a career, there are certain stages. But with my job, you don't have any kind of semblance. There's no trajectory where somebody might go, right, in another couple of years, you'll be here and then you can go for that promotion and then you can be really up and then really down yeah uh, and then you can feel really good in yourself and then nobody else is particularly interested they've moved on it's not personal yeah. you know I, also, I say this all the time I, I have been so in and out of fashion it's been really helpful 
because in a way my self-esteem is really intact I've had to work at it So you've sent me some amazing bits of jewellery, and some of them I'm just completely obsessed with. Oh, um, have you got a piece that takes you back to the Midlands and, you know, pre-modelling? The necklace of crosses, that looks like some kind yes. of confirmation thing. Well, it does, doesn't it? That's so, so beautiful. I love it too. I That's love it so, so much. I actually got this in a thrift store in New York when I was living there, and I was raised a Catholic. Both my parents are Irish. And they're both Catholics, or they they are, they were, they were born Catholics. We're none of us practicing Catholics, and that's that's fine. <laughs> I think if you've been to church enough and you have followed the Catholic faith enough, you make a choice. I think of whether you want to continue, and I didn't per se. But this this is the interesting thing about moving to the state. So although my religious beliefs have, let's say, evolved, the nostalgia grows. I was like some old woman at 21. Anything that I felt that was remotely to do with my my beginnings, my, my past, I wanted to hold on to, literally. And I saw this necklace with the crosses, but the way it's designed, it's kind of quite punk. I think it's extraordinary. It's just, it's really beautiful. And I, I'm quite interested because when you wear it, they're kind of um, sideways, aren't they? So they go around, yes. you know, so they're in line. It's very graphic. One of my big things with jewellery, one of my big drivers was seeing people like Madonna in the 80s. And they were wearing yes. jewelry in a really kind of quite punky fashion way. And I That's was, right, yeah. And it, sort of, it made me think, actually, I don't want to make kind of Bond Street jewelry and I don't want to make no. art gallery jewelry. I want to make jewelry that people wear, where I only yeah. put my jewelry on people. I don't want to see it in, a, in any other setting. And so that is a piece of jewelry that really just needs to be worn. And when it's worn, it comes to life. And it does remind me of that kind of quite punky New York thing. Well, yeah, the cross. You can't get more symbolic than that in terms of religion. But the way that it, it it's been so beautifully put together, it's graphic and bold, and it is. It's quite anarchic. So I, I kind of covered all bases with the um, nostalgia, but also it's a new take, a new take on it. For me, jewellery is an extension of who you are. I know that's a bit cliche, but it's better than getting a bad tattoo and then just having to live with little bits of you for the rest of your life you know like with everything in your life things evolve you change and actually jewelry is a good way of documenting your past so for example I got this in New York I got this in Paris yeah I'm holding up the little pearl that looks a crown. bit like or something right. or, or, um, it does or a bit Vivian Westwoody actually gonna, bit Westwoody that's right very Vivian Westwoody so just going back to the cross necklace so what it is is yeah it's quite a long necklace and it's just a series of crosses linked end to end basically isn't it and then yeah did it come from a catholic thrift store or no purely a fashion thing not a you know it's not like a rosary having seen that i bought this out from my set Ooh. and this is my grandmother's rosary um, wow and i always i always wanted to be a catholic i was about to say have you done something today that feels a bit dodgy if so we can do uh, a few hail marys <laughs> It's the romance of it. So it's basically, yeah. I always used to think, you know, do you choose Al Pacino or Cliff Richard? And I always preferred Al Pacino. So I used ah. to, you know, I, I've got my grandmother's old rosary and I, I used to go to midnight mass and things. And my bloody kids, right? Oh, bloody, I'm going to embarrass you. Our dear, lovely kind of, I don't know what to call her, but she was almost like a grandmother. She was like a housekeeper. She came with the house when we moved in years. Yeah, yeah. And, um, she, oh, you're going to say the whole story, right? <laughs> so, so, yes, she died. Me and Denise were away, but the kids went to her funeral, mm -hmm. which was a very mm -hmm. high Catholic thing. And I was talking to the kids mm. about it. They said, um, no. they said, oh my God, it was great. Yeah, like halfway through, they gave us a cup of wine and some biscuits, free biscuits. And I was like, no. No, we did not say that. <laughs> we just sat down and everybody started standing up and sitting down. And It's a very complex system of rituals, isn't it? It's the body and blood of Christ, by the way. No, I knew that. But he just... <laughs> But everybody stood up and they were taking these... these but but how, you, you wouldn't be expected to know that. I'm going to dig myself into a hole, but <laughs> the guy who was giving <laughs> the bread... Biscuits. The, biscuits. the, <laughs> yeah, the, bo the body of Christ. The body yeah. of Christ. He 
me and Libby were trying to see how people were taking it because we didn't know what was happening. And yeah, Libby went yeah. up ahead of me and um, he kind of held it halfway between her hand and her mouth and she didn't know like how to take it. So she kind of took it with her mouth and the guy who was holding it looked really shocked. <laughs> and Libby kind of stood there and was like, let's just go now, let's just go. Well, that's a pretty sensible choice. I mean, I, even as a child, found it just a little bit grotesque that you're quite close to the priest, like head to head, probably about a foot apart. And you literally have to bob your tongue out. I just couldn't get it. Yeah, but Alex, like you say, just a lot of the kind of ornamental side of, I think, every religion that you can take from it what you want. And that's what I did when I bought this necklace. I think that's lovely. And so what age were you when you were in New York? I first landed in New York when I was 19. In the, so in was, the 90s? Yes, I was but a wee halfling, not quite grown, really, I would say in my mind. But my body was was very extreme already I think I was about six foot one so uncomfortable flight then yeah it was actually you know knees up at the back of the chair constantly getting nudged because they were obviously annoying the person in front yeah I stayed I would say until I was about 35 on and off you're kind of a native New Yorker almost so London is probably the most foreign place to me because I, I didn't grow up here yeah and then I moved to New York and then actually when I realized I was pregnant with Albert I like a maniac packed up my apartment in my first trimester myself and flew home with him in my tummy I all of a sudden decided it was a very instinctual thing like I just wanted to be near my folks nice. and I wanted to raise my child my children in England again and it was about being connected to my family because I'm really close to my sisters I mean, we yeah. drive each other insane but we speak every day we're very different but there are always these common threads and lots of really utterly inappropriate conversations between us. Um, it sounds like a really happy, normal upbringing. Yeah, it was. We three got up to all sorts. Um, I was actually probably the most introvert. In fact, I, I just really was. Although having said that, I did quite a lot of hobbies outside the home, if that makes sense. Yeah. So I was sort of willing to try things if I could kind of disappear into the background. So I was really into ballet and singing and music because it was a big almost congregation of people or a team, you know, netball or whatever. I've definitely always been a bit of a team player. I never really needed to take centre stage, but at home I was probably the mildest mannered for yeah. sure yeah I love that I think there's a lovely thing in team things like choirs where you can kind of hide at any point that you want to and also yeah. you can step up to the front if you're feeling a bit extrovert you can belt it but also you can hide if you're not sure what you're doing just this thing of making something work on yeah. mass it's yeah. actually really hard <laughs> I don't know if you've ever played music or you play an instrument or you know it, the, the synchronization is actually it requires more effort than just sort of thinking of yourself so it's kind of a bit nuts that I ended up doing a job that is very it is team orientated but when you take the stage it's a very personal thing you're on your own and literally the spotlight's on you and it can only be your physical interpretation which tells the story So if our listener um, hasn't been lucky enough to go to uh, like a proper big show in Paris, where I've, I've only been a couple of times, I've been really lucky because working at the show, sometimes I'd see, like normally it was, um, you know, the people from Browns or something and they'd say, yes. oh, we, you know, we can't go, do you want a ticket for, for whoever? And, um, and I'd go along in the evening. And my gosh, it is the, even, you have to wait about two hours for it to start, right? Because, you know, they say yeah. it starts at seven and it doesn't. So that bit's a bit boring. But once the music starts pumping and the show starts, it is a, a tremendous piece of theatre, isn't it? It's really good fun. It is, it is. I mean, if you think two hours is a long way, try eight. Because generally we get there up to six hours before yeah. because of the physical transformation that's required. Yeah. Think prosthetics, think wigs, think corset fits, think, you know, the, we don't get rehearsals 
for example. You, you, you may not know that. Yeah, well, we don't have choreographers or directors. The one thing that is always ensured uh, by the show producers is that we know where to hit the light. And there might be certain moments in the music where there's a cue, almost like a crescendo, where we have to kind of hit a moment. I'm doing a very exaggerated shape <laughs> with my 183 centimetre frame. It's a bit like a silent movie, isn't it? Mm. Very obvious mm. comparison, but it's true in many ways. So we're not granted that kind of coaching. We don't have a time period to learn our character so much. We just go in and give it our best job. And, and you know, the hilarity of it all is that backstage is real chaos. I mean, you've got people eating sandwiches about two feet away from portaloos. You know, some girls are studying, some girls are knitting. There's all sorts of FaceTime conversations happening and I photographers mean, backstage. And I think the smell of portaloos is going to connect me to, to various fashion weeks more than anything else. I and everyone say, oh, I'm off to Milan or I'm off to Paris or whatever. And they go, oh, how romantic. You know, I'd love to go. And you just think, actually, I'm going to be weeing in a portaloo and, you know, having a, a, a rather sad sandwich in my hotel room. At sort of- a sad <laughs> sandwich. <laughs> oh, I've had many a sad sandwich oh. in hotel rooms. <laughs> I'm, I'm actually really glad that I, I'm not, that's, I've done my time. I feel, I feel yeah. like I've done my time with them. And it's I, really I know what you too. mean. Yeah, I, I'm kind of going you know here and there if I feel I can pull it off and what what I mean by that is is that at this point I know what works and what really doesn't work and it's a really really lovely and in many ways I've say encouraging thing particularly with young designers when they ask me to participate I always think it's brilliant it's a massive compliment you know because they're doing their things is their time and yeah. and I, they take a chance I think by extracting something that may have been from the past or had big exposure that had a, an impact so much so that perhaps trying to repeat it or, or, or bring new life into it is, is a bit of a daring move and yeah. I'm talking about you know makeup artists and and hairstylists models all of us and I just feel that when you work with young people sometimes there are certain things that are required and, and sometimes little things little details are missing like that's a really really cool leather catsuit but where's the zip to yeah. get into it but, but, so that's actually happened to me before I've gone to put my look on <laughs> the third look that wasn't ready in the fitting the night before and it's beautiful it's like a sculpture and then they haven't really considered the fact that a human being needs to be poured into it and it's not actually made it onto the runway that exit didn't get aired so that poor cat suit was not given its its moment oh, of, of glory and I was severely apologetic as was the designer but it was a very very beautiful piece I, I just like to point that out but I do like doing runway for example I went back and did Gautier after I had Eddie my youngest and I was probably more nervous about that than I was you know when I flew through the air in an airplane hangar for McQueen 30 feet high in a in a harness because it's a real thing trying to get back into that public space when you've done something so intimate and, and something that's so um vital i.e feeding your baby yeah. and keeping your baby with you and well and, and nourished and then all of a sudden you're fussing and worrying about you know oh gold are my heels gonna stay on and am I gonna trip over my dress but there is something in that there are two elements a physical element my bones were still bendy from the hormones of having had my my little big baby boy uh, and the second is you know you're just not used to being looked at and by that I don't mean just people looking at you but there's a certain expectation even if you walk into a room there's a there's a bit of a performance element to it mm. it takes a while for me to get used to um eyes on me again if that makes sense does that happen to you in your everyday private life um are, you know are you recognized and then and do people have expectations of you I'm not always sure if I'm recognised for my job. I get gawked at a lot, but I also appreciate that I'm a woman with short hair and I'm six foot, you know. So you pass me in the street and I, I understand why people look at me. I don't know whether they make the work connection, but I don't hang around long enough. Yeah. <laughs> I am actually really shy. Yeah. I don't know um, if you believe me, because I think a lot of the time the things that I do, they're very extreme, but me myself I am I am definitely extremely shy so in real life I always say real life I tend to flit about quite a lot 
Yeah, no, I don't make it easy to, to kind of stop me. I mean, you you hear so often about people who who've been really shy, or perhaps people that stammer, or and they often they go into acting. Don't you know? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's like a butterfly. Suddenly you're out on the screen and you can do all these things and almost act out this secret second life, and then you know withdraw everything back in. And... I mean, all I would say is that I felt far more fraudulent the first time I stepped out my house with a pram mm. than I did mm. on a catwalk in Paris you know when you become a mum for the first time it's just an unbelievable thing has just happened you are never just you ever again forever (laughs) it's you and your baby you know and that's it that's the deal you know the dynamic duo of Albert and I in the first couple of years was was really wonderful Uh, and instead of having fashion emails coming through I was getting ever so excited over the mother care sales and (laughs) You know, I, I took a screen grab once. He was about six months old when I went back to work. And I went to New York for the shows and I opened the Mark Jacobs show. So in my I- inbox somewhere, I'll see if I can send you this. I've got two emails sandwiched together and one says Mother Care and the one below it says Mark Jacobs. <laughs> <laughs> And I thought, when did these two names ever collide or belong in one box? And in fact, they do, because that's my life. That's kind of how it has turned out. Well, I mean, it's weird, isn't it? Because there's this big conflict between the extremely intimate, which having a child, giving birth and and being on your own with your child is is probably the most intimate thing that you can do where where nobody else matters. It's just you in your own space. And then going off to do a a, a Gautier catwalk show is the most, (laughs) one one of the most extroverted things you can do. That's really interesting, is it? This big Mm. juxtaposition between those two things. Yeah, it's... um... Probably really good fun, right? Well, it's really good fun, but increasingly I find it exhausting because I realise the energy it takes me to put on her, Mm. as it were, because it's not like acting where, let's say you get however many takes. I don't know if you get good, maybe get it in one. We have one chance, and it's a bit of a joke, but I always say I've got one chance to get it wrong. (laughs) And it's that moment where I go into a portaloo, and actually I love portaloos because it's the only private space you have backstage just to get myself together and breathe and just remember that I've got, you know, between one and three minutes to go out and, and perform what needs to be performed and hopefully meet expectations. Yeah, the divide has become ever more extreme for me. So actually doing two roles in one week is is surprisingly knackering. I mean, brilliant and humbling that I'm able to get that balance, but quite knackering. I wonder if someone's going to bring out a scented candle called Eau de Portaloo and you can get into your own little happy place at, at home. Or in your, at, Alex, you've just given my next business plan away. <laughs> Um, show us, will you show us the, the lovely kind of Vivian Westwood-esque pearl yes. crown? Is it a brooch? Yes, it's a brooch. So will you describe that for my listener? I will, I will. So it's a collection of different sized pearls in the shape of a traditional crown. The band at the bottom is different jewels in sort of green and red colours. They look like lots of emeralds and a ruby, but I can't tell from here whether they're... Whether they're they're certainly not real they're emeralds yeah. and rubies. Otherwise, the poor person in the Parisian flea market <laughs> was done over. I love the two big pearls here they're not boobs listeners they, they look like alien eyes oh now you say now you say that yeah we thought what a beautiful vivian westwood crown but actually we've got a goggle-eyed frog well would you know that's really funny actually you've just reminded me of something so this is my everyday staple is that the dog there's another dog we've got lots of dogs here this is my everyday staple this is you thank you it's my everyday so it's my peace necklace and my son i don't know however long ago he thought i said pizza <laughs> so he still refers to it as mummy's pizza necklace and he still before he goes to sleep at night he has to hold my hand or my pizza necklace so 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 he's been doing that since he was really wee it's a nice story I like the idea and, that pieces will have a life beyond the present. And I imagine that that could be something that will 
connect your son to you yeah generations that's so sweet no matter where we are he just yeah. sort of reaches out if it's not my hand it's my pizza <laughs> the pizza necklace um the dinosaur collection Yes. I got to wear my beloved T-Rex for about three seconds. He's nicked that. So he sure. wears that. Yeah. Should we do him one on a key ring or something? I don't, does he? Oh, my we'll gosh. I love that collection. Loads and loads, I have to say. So what, what I like is we've got the, the crown piece. You bought in a yeah. flea market in Paris. So we've, we've already got Paris and New York. This is such a, such a fashion thing. And the Midlands. <laughs> and the Midlands. I love brooches. You know, there's a thing now for kind of power brooches, you know, like Nancy Pelosi mm. and people like that yeah. who, who wear a brooch to symbolise. So that it, might, it might be a spider or a snake or a scorpion when they take on, you know, someone. Yeah, no, I've heard about this, yeah. Well, you know, if they're in the Supreme Court and they, they want to spread a global message in 2D form, you know. Yeah. I'm wearing a, a, a men's tuck shirt today, mm. but what yeah. I, I would do possibly, yeah. I would just nip in the neck there with, with the brooch. Cool. That's how I would wear it. That's such a nice piece, isn't it? It's lovely. I mean, I probably wouldn't do it on McCarty. It just feels a bit, I can do that in 30 years. So cool. I do love jewellery and, and I've changed a lot over the years. I mean, I'm so sorry to say this, Alex. I don't really wear silver. Yeah. find it a bit cold for me because I'm already pale enough. But also, it reminds me of wearing train track braces ah. <laughs> for three years. <laughs> so I just can't quite get my head around it. What I decided to do quite early on was because I wanted to sort of sell to people like me. So our standard offering is in silver or gold plate. So now we're doing an awful lot more in, in 18 karat and, and solid gold. But I just, I've always loved the fashion industry. Do you like the fashion industry? Well, here's the thing. I think in a way, I bob along the periphery quite well. Mm. So I jump in and out. And what I do, it's like a, a big hit of exposure, whether it's sort of in 2D form popping up in a magazine or on the stage. Mm. And then I kind of like to retreat. So I know how I feel about my own role within the fashion industry. And um, there are elements of it that I, I've always felt quite guarded mm -hmm. over. And, and it has nothing to do with anyone else. But it's just the feelings I have about myself and what I need to preserve. Mm. It is really a story mm. of self-preservation. And actually, that just helps me to do my job. Because yeah. I'm not then carrying the load of other people's expectations. Yeah. I'm just trying to fulfill the brief and keep my eye on the, yeah. on the prize, as it were. You know, I'm good at talking with one or two people in a studio. And then I promise you, I'm not a massive bore off. I, I like to have a good time and I like to be with my friends and I love a drink and like a nice glass of wine. Mm. But I, I never somehow, even when I was young, I never needed to go to the after party. Mm. Yeah. I just was sort of ready to go home and uh, exhale and just kind of <laughs> decompress. Don't get me wrong. Of course, there is fear of missing out, but then... Oh, excruciating shyness in a busy room where you can never really hear what anyone's saying to you versus going home and cuddling and watching Netflix. To me, it's a no-brainer. Yeah. And often when we work, you know, it's extreme. It's really long hours. Yeah. And, you know, you need to go home and rest because actually there's a lot of physicality in our job as well. So, for example, if we wear a piece for couture, it could weigh up to 20, 25 kilos in extra body weight you're carrying. So the composition of that and how it sort of compromises your body and the way you have to move in a different way you can't really do that on three hours sleep honest you so just can't it, pull it off on a hangover I, you can't. and i'm like socially really anxious so I, they were all, are you yeah man so much so but there was this brilliant time in my life it was when four weddings and a funeral came oh yeah paris and i was kind of like a you know awkward english bloke with floppy hair Suddenly, oh my gosh it was like fashionable to be like a young Hugh Grant bit Huey so yeah for about two minutes um kind of people would talk to me and things and then that all went away and it was all back to yeah. me standing in the corner thinking fuck fuck fuck, fuck why does nobody talk to me <laughs> yeah. Yeah. so yeah um can yeah, we very yeah. quickly look at yeah. the third piece so that we at least yeah. we've got three picks on the website yeah yeah, uh, yeah. oh I called it website that's not very good website website did you call it website <laughs> I called it my website <laughs> Your PR needs to sit with you in the room, Alex. Well, that's what Connie's supposed to do. <laughs> oh, my God.
What about this one? I love the that. ring. Yeah. Tell me about this one. Was it a gift? Because you bought the last two pieces you bought for yourself, and we've got. Sort of... It's from my parents. It's from my parents. Ah, oh, are your parents yes. still with, with us? Um, yes, they are. Yeah. It's engraved inside, and oh. it's like a clad clad ring. Yeah, yeah. And um, obviously, it's Irish, which is what we are. But it's the symbolism. I am a bit of a hopeless romantic, really, in the tr- traditional sense. I don't feel I need to wear jewelry correctly for example you know um but the three meanings behind it are love friendship and loyalty Mm. so love is the heart the friendship the hands and i guess it's like a little crown is loyalty as you get older you you really do cherish these things so much more so this never comes off either this is a firm fixture this is like my tattoo you wear rings very well i must say do you think yeah. But it's funny you say that because I've got really long fingers. We do a lot of bespoke rings. Everyone, first thing they yeah. do is they apologise about their fingers. It's like, oh my do God. Do they? Why does everyone apologise about them? You've got lovely hands. Uh, well, no, I'm not saying that they're terrible, yes. but but it's a bit tricky with jewellery sometimes because my knuckles are bigger than the rest of my fingers. So it just means that they tend to swivel a little bit, that's all. So any jewellery campaign I've ever done... They've always got masking tape stuck on the other side of my hand, literally masking tape. And I'm doing some kind of outrageously (laughs) elegant pose or or whatever the art direction is. And, you know, the bodyguards eye me up from two feet away and it's worth over a million quid. And yet we've got masking tape stuck to my hand in the ring because of the shape of my fingers. (laughs) So brilliant. In my day, when when we'd have like jewellery catalogues, they'd always have, have a a soft focus naked woman with her hands sort of just covering her nipples, you know, with, with about the <laughs> rings and breaks, because it was a very much male dominated industry. They'd all go, cool, she's all right. Yeah, so, I love that. Subtle yeah, messaging yet again. Mm-hmm. It, was, it was inspirational for me because I just I just thought I'm going to do the opposite of what of that. that is. I know. I kind of actually, I just wanted to ask you why how did you get into jewelry and and obviously I know you love nature but what was your thing what made you want to you know people have ideas and and beautiful ones all the time I think I think it's interesting because because you've got boys and I think again there might be some parallel for us because I spent my whole time being very effeminate as a as a young Mm. boy I was skinny Mm -hmm. and tall and effeminate and I liked I used to press flowers. I loved clothes making and cooking. Mm-hmm. And I loved talking with women and hanging out with women. And I love, absolutely love fashion and jewelry. So the assumption was my family thought I was gay. All my friends thought I was gay. So there was always this, this parallel with, with, with being slightly more effeminate and that th- that must determine your sexuality. So I, I always had this struggle with, with thinking, no, I'm a man and I feel like a man and I, and, and, and I need to sort of, sit in a in a mannish way and wear mannish clothes so i spent a long time trying to act the way that i thought people expected me yeah and yeah. jewelry was one of those things that in the end i just kind of was drawn into i actually wanted to do fashion but, but i didn't get into you any did. of the unis but jewelry was, yeah. was you know a, a very fashion connected thing and i was really interested in it. you know and for quite a long time i struggled with not doing a sort of mannish job where i ought to be sort of working in the city or being a bricklayer or i don't know what it was um, <laughs> And and uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's just, I don't know. I think it'd be interesting for you. It's such a nice time now because you, you've got boys. I think they'll have a much wider pick of yeah. how they want to express themselves, how they express their sexuality and their, their selves as people. And, and yeah. you know, Suffolk in 19s, you know, late 60s and 70s. It yeah, it was pretty rigid. I'm, I'm, rigid gender-wise. I'm sure. and I, I really fight against, I'll, I'll always fight against um Good. sort of stereotypes and I think that's that's obviously something that you've been really committed to is allowing people to be particularly in the fashion industry allowing mm. people to be who they are and expressing their own beauty regardless of whether it fits into any narrow conformity yeah yeah with the initiatives that I've put together it was all sort of reactionary I mean everything starts out negative when you've had a bad splash of press and it feels like the world's going to end and it was when the size zero debate um, started flying around the world and it generated very quickly and for whatever reason or maybe no reason at all I was included in the mix 
of girls that were seen as being instigators of negative body image. And that had such a profound impact on me. I was devastated because I'd always really hoped, is the word, that girls would be responsive to me because I didn't fit that remit, that ideal of what a woman is supposed to look like, nor could I. I just wasn't made that way. And yet I always felt very feminine. So in a way, I felt my job was to just sort of hold on to me a bit and express it. And I I sort of became accidentally anarchic, maybe. That's how I'd put it. But I felt very responsible, even though I wasn't necessarily the instigator. I felt very responsible for turning it around. And it was a way of kind of suppressing the media by actually having an output that was positive. So instead of going, oh, you've been really mean to me. And believe you me, I did feel like that. It was it was yeah. awful at times. I was publicly humiliated to within an inch of my life. Every subject and taboo was put out for the world to read. I probably couldn't have kids. I was really stupid, probably hadn't passed any GCSEs. I probably starved my body and I probably only weighed this. And all of these extraordinary speculations of people talking about you publicly it's really bizarre so there was an undercover reporter and she posed as a dresser at a catwalk show and then an article came out the following morning describing me from head to toe from angles that I've never seen of myself because she'd had access and she wanted to talk about what I what I looked like and it wasn't in a complimentary way and I found it so disturbing that anybody should feel that way so I thought right how do I deal with this and how do I get over it and how do I stop feeling so scared right now so I thought right I'm gonna let you have it I'm going to let you have it. I responded and I said, yeah, you know, you're quite right. Perhaps we can work on what we project. Because I think whether you love fashion or not, it's not really the point. It sort of seeps into everybody's lives. You can't get away from it. It's a very powerful tool. It's a 2D tool that speaks globally. And, you know, if we're at the forefront of that, then it's a good question. Why isn't there more diversity? Why aren't there women of different ages and ethnicities and backgrounds? However you want to look at it or feel it or phrase it. It was a missing. I thought you kind of added into that diversity, Erin, because you were... you you were. So did I. You were different. Uh, so I'm really surprised. I wasn't aware of all this. I'm really surprised at the reality no. that you were part of it. I mean, I do feel like if you work in an industry, if there are obviously problems within that industry, we do all have a responsibility to get involved. So it's no good sort of sitting back and... Agreed. Back, you know. So that that's great. But I thought you were part of the movement one of the pioneers of opening the industry up. So, so, so did I. God, I thought they, obviously they want diversity, <laughs> but they want the, a specific no. type of, of diversity. Well, here's the thing. There are many ways, you know, that I would actually really genuinely celebrate the fashion industry, particularly the people in it, the real creative people and what they pushed because they feel that it's desirable and they're acting a lot on instinct. But, you know, in the same way that without realising we can be quite limited. And I just felt that there was an opportunity to seize by just putting out beautiful men and women that didn't necessarily fit a limited ideal of what beauty can look like. And and I certainly didn't conform when I came in. I mean, every time I went to America, I got told by a different person to get my nose fixed. Every time I went to LA, um, I was encouraged to get my boobs blown up. And I didn't, not because I thought, oh, I've got a lovely nose and boobs. What are they talking about? It's because I felt very stubborn. You know, I've been pretty good at criticising myself over the years, particularly when I was younger. But I won't let anybody else do that. And it made me think a lot about the young girls coming into the industry and what they need and what they didn't have. So I set up a union because we didn't have one. (laughs) We just didn't have one. I'm so not political. That's the irony, you know. That is a political action isn't it but on the other hand I was invested in keeping people going and making them feel well yeah you know especially if we're advertising ourselves you know you want to to go in thinking that the person wearing the frock is in good health and I think a lot of the girls felt very penalized and worried and uncertain and they were young and I think even having a law so I was part of a group of people that put together a law saying that you know under the age of 16 in the UK and that's now across Europe Girls should be protected. So they're not permitted to work until they're 16 years of age. Because if you throw a girl onto a catwalk who is 
13, 14, and she's emulating a woman and she looks very grown up. Then actually you've got some sensible, very grown up woman who's watching the show either from her laptop or on the front row thinking, oh, this is the version of beauty I'm trying to attain. And actually it's very tough for both, isn't it? It's tough for the girl and it's tough for the audience because the girl isn't yet fully grown in her mind actually and physically in her body. But then you've got a woman that probably can afford to pay for the dress, but she can't buy the dress because the dress won't suit her because of some very limiting ideal of what body or bodies should look like. What what is a desirable body? So I thought, right, no, no, I've had enough. And I pushed something that I almost didn't believe in myself. And more and more creative started to respond. So Nick Knight was about one of my first heroes. He got involved and we, we did a campaign called Size Me Up. And it was really about trying to ask people to sort of adjust their attitudes to what they had seen and what they would like to see. Um, and each woman, each model held up a letter. And Rankin was also really, really brilliant. He was a trooper. He was a believer before anybody else really and um, a lot of the women a lot of the girls in particular responded and they felt that they didn't need representation because they weren't the villains nor were they the victims they just wanted to work peacefully and well in a safe environment so that's kind of what I helped to Mm. to put out I think it's really interesting because you have to separate fashion from the fashion industry and from the kind of God that is making money because a lot of the, there's huge money in the youth business. So we're all constantly pumped the idea that if we buy a cream or or do a certain exercise or eat certain food, we're going to look younger. Why the hell do we want to look younger? Why don't we look ourselves, you know? But it's, it's simply because there's money to be made out of people's insecurities. So that's right. I've always had a big problem of putting my finger on, on where the fault lies. But certainly, I feel like if there's money to be made out of people's insecurities, we're going to be in trouble. And somehow we need people like you to offer a counterfoil to this cascade of power and money that's pushing us <laughs> in the other direction. We need your unions and we need your militancy and we need people like you to say, hang on a minute. And the more of us that stand up and say that, the better, I think, for everyone. Essentially, I think what you're saying is there's beauty in people and there's beauty in people regardless of what shape and size they are. And it would be better for us as a society to move towards realising that beauty rather than asking those people to change physically. Who they are. Which is a dilemma. It's a dichotomy for me because obviously that's kind of what I... I don't promote. I want to be very clear clear with that I try always to feel like I'm responding with whatever the audience looks like well that sounded a bit cringe and pretentious yeah. <laughs> you know I'm struggling to say what I want to say because I really mean it I think I never ever wanted to feel separated from the audience this idea of inclusivity has always been really at the forefront of what I want to do because it's a big cultural machine mm. I think fashion and and in many ways it's been misrepresented for example if we're talking about heritage you need to talk to the people that were the makers the original creators and bring them to the forefront bring them in the fold you know what we need to do if we're calling ourselves creative then we need to get creative and open up and really think surely with design credentials we can do our very best to work on very diverse people who have their own beauty Mm. and put it out there loud and proud and I'm not the only person that there's there were lots of us that felt very strongly or, or actually there was a genuine confusion as to why it wasn't already happening so me and Connie we watch celebs go dating and married at first sight it's like our proper you know end of day trash just yeah it. I shouldn't be watching it because there is a homogeny in the yeah. physical appearance and it's often done synthetically to bring everyone to looking I think particularly the women, but also more for men now, mm. to bring them all into this one type of idea of what beauty is. And I think that's, I, I find that weird and shocking because when I was at uni in the early 80s, there was a yeah. feminist movement. Yeah. There were precursors to that in the in the 60s and 70s and in the 80s and 90s. We end up in this position where it kind of often feels, when you look at a lot of popular culture, that, that we've almost 
almost gone backwards. And so I think it's mm. important not to be saddened by that and to keep the idea of hope and that we can. Yeah, I, I was about to say, yeah. And it brings us back to how we started our conversation, doesn't it? You know, and the importance of individuality. It's an easy thing to say, but it's not the easiest thing to maintain because we're bombarded by imagery all the time of what is deemed okay and what is not. And um, I don't want to perpetuate that. I don't want to be part of that. But it's true. I think girls growing up today, they hear very extreme and expensive way of, of looking it to be the only way and and I, I'm genuinely baffled I don't know maybe I'm showing my age but you know it's the fact that it's the immediacy of it the availability of imagery everywhere from your phone the tv that you know the trashy tv shows that we all secretly love you know it's just there it's omnipresent it's exhausting mm. I just hope we don't regress anymore when we see brilliant presences on the screen like we got obsessed with Beanie Feldstein because of How to Build a Girl and Booksmart and that kind of thing. And then yeah. we kind of pounce on people that are like, hey, you're really interesting and you're yourself and you're inspirational, which is <laughs> yeah. kind of why I was so keen to talk to you today. I'm feeling guilty because it's, we've been chatting for so long and presumably you've got boys that need um, teaching. Yeah, more. it's Pizza Friday, so it's all cool. <laughs> yeah. I've done my maths and spelling tests all cool um, no doubt there'll be some homework but we're okay here how do you do your pizzas do, do you like get the bases and then put the toppings on or do you make it from start to finish what we do <laughs> is we go on our phone and we hit deliver room and we get it from pizza express right Classic. So friday so mummy doesn't cook <laughs> so nice that sounds so good so there's a there's a pasta delivery people that, that and they deliver Ooh. in this area on a monday and it's it's really nice freshly made pasta with with we kind of get that on a Monday. It's kind of because we're trying to give the week some some shape. You know, that's the problem with yeah. the lockdown thing, isn't it? Is that everything turns out the same? So, and then we get a take on a Sunday. Yeah, that's do you? Friday's oh God! I just bought a hot pot. You know those Betty Crocker pots. Yes. Where you right. chuck it all in, you just have to chop and chuck, and right. it changed my life. Just Leave it for eight hours. You don't even have to stir it. I chop it. That's what we need. When you're still in your PJs, Connie, you just got to whack it on, cut your veg, put yeah, your seasoning in. She's still in the PJs at the two o'clock in the afternoon sometimes. I, I'm always in my PJs for the first school Zoom of the day, always. Erin, <laughs> thank you so much. Um, I can't thank you enough. You're very welcome. It was so lovely to speak to you all. Thanks, Erin. Have a lovely pizza night. Take care. We will. Bye. Bye. Enjoy thank you. Bye. 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 I've had real fun making this first series of This Is A Token, but as we draw near the end of season one, there's a couple of things I'd like to ask of you, my kind and patient listener. Firstly, if you've enjoyed hearing from my guests and their most treasured pieces of jewellery, it would be brilliant if you could leave a rating or a review, and if you subscribe to the programme too. Oh, and share it with your friends. It makes a real difference, and it'll help other jewellery lovers find us too. And your feedback would be brilliant. It'll help guide what we do in season two. Also, if you have any fun jewellery-related stories, please do get in touch via the website. I'd love to hear from you. You might have a favourite guest to suggest or a theme we haven't covered yet or anything really. It'd just be really nice to hear from you. Anyway, as always, a huge thank you for listening. Really looking forward to hearing your suggestions for series two. (laughs) 